Hello everyone, I'm Ryan, the host of the Maximize podcast for Gen Z. On this podcast we talk about mental health and all the other issues that relate to it. We're speaking to new guests weekly who are breaking taboos, sharing their own personal story and also engaged in vital areas of the mental health landscape. Hello everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Maximize podcast. Joined here today by Ange McMillan, Director at Elemental Health Limited. Ange, welcome to Maximize, how are you? I'm very well, thank brilliant, you. Brilliant, brilliant. Really, really looking forward to this conversation. I think we're going to have um, plenty to talk about because you're actually involved in some professional pursuits that are really similar to what, what we're looking to achieve here at Maxim, So, which is fantastic. It's great to see another person, you know, um, so devoted to improving youth mental health and all that surrounds it. So just with that um, bit of context, what do you think, Ange, are the, the most pressing challenges facing us when it comes to youth mental health today? Gosh, I mean, you'll note this as well. I think, you know, the systems that our young people exist in at the moment are causing huge amounts of problems, whether that's school, the environment, mm. just kind of trying to navigate through just day to day is just a real, it's really difficult for a lot of our young people at the moment. Throw in, you know, being overly connected in one sense and yet feeling lonely and disconnected yeah. in others. You know, relationships with friends and peers are very different, can be very confusing. Teacher relationships, family life, the pressure of being a person, mm. academics. It's a lot. Isn't it is it? a lot. And it's, it's, you did touch upon something there. Um, it's, it is curious how, yeah, there is a bit of a loneliness. It is talked about now that there's a bit of a loneliness epidemic. But curiously, you are correct to point out that we are strangely more connected to certainly the you know the the whole human of humanity as a group, if you want to put it like that. And that is a bit of a a bit of a contradiction in a way. Um, how do you think it is that just on that wee point? How do you think it is that there is an epidemic of loneliness, but we are. There is an epidemic of loneliness that is taking place amidst this broader connection, do you think, to the rest of humanity? I think it's we're almost watching people do things that we're not actually directly part of. So it's like we're witnessing other people appearing to be connected, but at the same time, we're, we're sort of one step removed from that. So I think... On the one hand, it's great that we can speak to each other whenever we want and, you know, and use all of the different social media platforms to do that. And at the same time, you might not be in the same physical space as me, or you might be with friends or our friends, and I might not have been invited. And then that can sort of exacerbate those feelings of, of loneliness mm -hmm. as well. No, super. I completely agree with that. Just following on from that, um, now, whenever I was growing up, I can't remember my school ever having a mental health counsellor. Maybe they did, like if someone will reach out to me from the school, but no, we did have a counsellor. <laughs> but I, I can't remember one ever being, you know, kind of that uh, explicit or well-known. There is, a, you know, obviously most schools have a counsellor. How effective do you think the system of having a school counsellor has been in sort of, you know, treating with treating youth mental health and teenagers that are struggling with their mental health? And what do you think can be improved about it? I think certainly here in Wales, we have a counsellor in every single secondary school, in every yeah. single high school. I think having run counselling services in schools and sixth form colleges, very often you're the first person to kind of spot the trends if there mm -hmm. are issues or 
kind of problems happening within the school community. So I think in terms of kind of frontline work, councils are really well placed to be able to spot maybe things that are coming up very early on. Typically, you're more likely to get access to a counsellor in school, I hope, quicker than you might do if you went via mm. other pathways. So often they're, often they're the kind of the first, the first thing that people um, might come across in terms of mental health professionals. Um, I think a good school counsellor can kind of hold the school community and, you know, can also support the teachers and the parents and carers as well. The flip side is... If you're in a little room in the middle of school and you don't want people to know that you're accessing support, then how can you ensure that you make things confidential? And obviously that can be really difficult if, you know, sometimes you're just given a room and that's, you know, you just have to kind of deal with it, covered under the stairs, which I've had in the past. Um, so, so there's a real contrast between maybe young people that want, want to access that service and be seen to accessing that service and young people that actually want to keep everything private and how do we make that how do we make that possible but i think school counselors can make a, a huge huge difference to the well-being of of children and young people i'm a big advocate for school counselors wonderful wonderful i think they're they really are super important you know bridge to 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 a world where you're able to talk about your mental health you know because if it starts the younger it starts if you're struggling with your mental health from a young age and which a lot of young people are it's the the quicker you can access that bridge to broader support the better i think you know and i think yeah is is has there do you think there's any have you encountered any barriers to to the the school counsellor system if you will do you think because obviously it's well known that as you transition into adolescence i think your um the research says that peer support becomes way more important than your parental and um, parental support anyway so they want um support and kind of big knowledge and respected by your peers more so than your parents when does you transition into adolescence do you think there is a bit of a uh what you say an antagonism between that desire for peer approval and peer support and going to see the school counsellor in a way uh, for Adelaide. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I always think of things as like, if we can in, if we can have a, like a whole school community yeah. approach, then it ideally will be something for everybody, whether that's a peer mentoring programme for one group of young mm -hmm. people, whether that is teaching PSHE or, or whatever the letters are, where we're teaching emotional literacy and we're giving skills on how to help a friend, whether we are creating really easy pathways into mm -hmm. accessing counselling services so that you know you you reduce the barriers. They don't have to go through a teacher, they can come straight to the straight to the counsellor. I think if a counsellor has a good yeah. reputation in the school, then peers are more likely to kind of encourage that and celebrate that or if they are supporting a friend they're more likely to refer them into a counseling service so i think it's how do we m meet the needs of all of those different types of young people because not everybody will want to yes. go to counseling yeah. but actually if we if we equip young people with the skills to be able to support each other and to understand actually here are the services that might be available to you if you feel like you are concerned about a friend then we're kind of equipping them for life and we're not saying you've just got to take the burden of responsibility which can often happen you know it's like your friend's really struggling maybe they're telling you first because that is what's yeah. going to happen 
then what do you do with that information if you are really worried about your friend you need to know as the supportive friend that you can go to get help from somewhere or to feel like your resource to be able to do that brilliant thank you so much for that i think um would, would it be true following off that would it be true to say that uh perhaps the one of the most important avenues of work that we still have to undertake when, when, it, when it comes to the system you know the school counselor and all the rest of it is it providing you know counseling like services for as many like learning styles as possible as many different personalities as possible is that still you feel the biggest challenge when it comes to the you know um the whole implementation of a school counselor and the work that they have to carry out i think again it's back to that if you've got a school that kind of really um are invested in what yeah, that yeah. service can provide and that it's not all you know all the issues end up in the counselor's room rather than yeah. a whole school approach. So for example, if as a counselor, I was seeing multiple young people coming through experiencing high levels of exam-based mm. stress in the schools that I've worked in in the past, I would then say, actually, do you know what? I've had 10 sessions in the last week where everybody is saying they're stressed. What can we do as a whole school mm. about this? So that then teachers can get involved, pastoral teams can get involved. So it's not all, it's not then only the yeah. counsellor's responsibility. It becomes that kind of shared collective yeah. responsibility. Yeah. So if we can all take care of each other in a school community, that's the best way of doing things. Yeah, I opinion. couldn't agree more. Um, the last call I had actually um, explored kind of a similar sort of um, pathway to that in the sense that kind of met increasing mental health literacy within the school population as a whole, you know, whether it's the teachers, the students, you know, whoever else is involved with board of governors. <laughs> um, I think um, it's super important because I think, you know, I get it. If the counselors kind of come in, they have their own room. It's a bit kind of like, Oh, you, it's, it's obviously in the school, but it's seen as like a, a separate part of the school in a way, you know, somewhere you go. Whereas if everyone embrace, you know, the, the world of mental health in that way. And it kind of trickled throughout everyone in the school, regardless of who they are. I think that's, that's definitely a super, super important thing. And something I'm certainly um, very, very, very passionate about, you know, seeing in the future. Um, um, and I'm sure you are as well. It's, it's, it's super, super important. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also explaining, you know, what mental health is, mm -hmm. what mental health struggles are, you know, all the pathways to getting support so that we're not just dealing with we're not reacting to things but we're being yes preventative, yeah, mm, yeah. Mm. is there just following on from that obviously the world whenever you're you're in the professional world of mental health is so broad and what i find is certainly from my own experience is that it almost teaches you to look at yourself in, in, in a different way than you did before you entered the, the world of mental health in a way you take less of what you think and what you believe for granted i think you know when it forces you just to really reflect upon what even you value uh, in a way what do you think is the most kind of important thing you know um working in mental health has has taught you in that regard i think i mean gosh my entire world mm. has been tipped upside down a hundred times through through um, this work the good <laughs> and i i think i suppose it's that being curious just continue to be curious be curious about yourself be curious about the work be curious about what's emerging be curious about the research that's coming out be curious about what young people and their carers are saying 
you know, listen more than mm. kind of That's speak, a big one. you know, yeah. Um, and yeah, and accept that we don't know, like we cannot be certain in this field that things are fluid and they change over time and like, and that's okay. It's hard, but that's okay. Yeah. No, I totally agree with that. I think um, it just follows up from that point where it's kind of like, you know, you can't take almost anything you think or believe or have cherished before for granted when you enter this the, this field, I think, regardless of what your role is within the field, I think it's, it's it imposes on you kind of like uh, an impulse just to rethink everything that you've been taught, rethink how you approach mental, what you thought of mental health, of course, before you entered the mental health world, probably goes without saying. What would be one thing it's kind of um, taught you that you didn't know before? So say before you entered the professional world of mental health, you know, and you're so naive and kind of like, yay, go with that to, to begin the good work. What What's one thing that's kind of really shocked you and it's taught you, you know, um, something so profound before you entered the field? I think it was certainly, I mean, this is way back in 2007 when I when I sort of started to train as a therapist and actually yeah. worked with young people before then was this sort of, this concept of what mental health is and how, you know, we all have mental health and how it can be affected and impacted by so many different mm. things. And, you know, experiences that might be regarded as positive experiences can still impact mental yeah. health in a way that, that, you know, can cause people to really struggle. But I think it's that sense that actually anybody can experience mental health problems and also that there are lots of things that we can do as human beings, really kind of basic foundational stuff that can support our mental health and well-being, regardless of where we, we see that as being. So I think the things that surprised me, you know, not that long ago were sort of things like the importance of sleep, sunlight, uh, you know, just simple, simple actions that we can take that are not going to cure uh a, a mental health diagnosis but actually might help that person kind of balance or ground themselves the importance of breath work okay. and the different ways that that can be used so i feel like looking back now at this in 2007 i feel like i knew yeah. absolutely nothing about anything including myself and now it's still a work in progress. <laughs> no, I am completely on board with you there. It's, it's definitely still a work in progress. I always say, but I learn something new kind of every day that I'm, you know, I'm with maximum engaged in this field and throughout the different mental health roles that I've held in the past. It's it, it's a it keeps teaching me things. It keeps making me rethink things, and it almost like I think one of the one of the things is it's how important it is to I'm trying to find the best way to describe this, but it's. How important it is to take responsibility for your own consciousness in a, in a strange way, you know, like you said, there are you know like the small daily habits, and that, of course, they're they're perhaps not going to prevent you know a serious, um, pathology or or diagnosis, but, you know, they do help in the everyday moment, and I think um, that's one thing that's that, that, that can be quite daunting in a way because you're kind of like oh well I have to rethink, so uh, oh I'm at this time again I have to start the breath work I have to rethink what I'm doing in this moment and that can be probably quite daunting for a lot of people I'm sure it certainly was for me whenever I first began thinking about all of this uh, as 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 often as I do. I think it can be really overwhelming. I think there are so many things that we 
think we should be doing, you know, if you're experiencing really low mood or depression or symptoms of anxiety, then sometimes getting up, getting dressed, opening really? the curtains can feel like yeah, an absolutely madness task. So I think there's something around meeting people wherever they are, you know, that actually if, if I'm working with a young person and, and they, they can't even get out of bed, then, you know, then we start sessions online in their bedroom if that's safe and comfortable for them and that's appropriate for that particular young person. I think stretching the edges of where we are is very different to pushing people into a state of complete overwhelm or feeling like they're failing. And I think certainly in terms of the information that young people can access now, we were talking about sort of online connectivity. Yeah, yeah. There's so much information out there about the things you can do, quick tricks, you know, hacks that you can try. Actually, it can feel really, really confusing and overwhelming if you're presented with all of that. Like, you know, you're not okay, but you're like, where do I why do I even start with all of this? Because if you don't feel okay, I know when I had anxiety, I couldn't think clearly. I couldn't make any decisions. I didn't know what I liked or what I didn't like. So the thought of somebody giving me even three simple actions to take, you know, in a therapy session would have been too overwhelming. So it's, you know, how do we remember that the most important thing we can do, whether we're therapists, mental health professionals, or just human beings is to listen to whatever that person is communicating, whether they're using words or body language or the drawing pictures or telling stories in different ways. Like if we if we compare tension, then that can help us support them wherever they are. And sometimes, you know, people don't need strategies, they just need somebody to care. Mm -hmm. Oh, and I completely agree with that. I think um it's it's so, you know, and this is something that's come up in quite a lot of the episodes uh, that I've done so far. And I think um, it's kind of like a thread through, through each of them almost, uh, certainly most of them. It's really the importance of uh, being empathetic and just listening to another human being and, um, you know, give their story um, without approaching it with your own, your own preconceptions and what you would like to get out of the conversation and all that. Um, and I think it could be it could be very easy to fall into that pattern whenever you enter a professional field you know it deals with you kind of you learn about it you sort of forget that people are human beings in a way because you're ready with your diagnostic categories and your your body of knowledge that's been accumulated but i think that is one thing that's really you know come out of all the conversations that i've had and um, regardless of what the what the, the focal point of the conversation has been about it's really been you know the importance of, of of listening and being empathetic, which are really simple things. And I think, you know, because listening is something that perhaps takes, a, maybe it takes a lot of time. It certainly takes a lot of focus, you know, energy, attention and concentration, but it's such a worthwhile thing to do. And do you think that there's maybe a... Listening and listening that intentively certainly has probably been forgotten about, you know, to the extent that it maybe did before, because maybe people have a lot of time and... Um, and uh, had a lot of time back then, but they don't really have as much time now. Do you think there's a there's a, there's a what would you say an antagonism between you know the need for listening and being empathetic and just how fast paced modern life is in that way? I mean, I think I think modern life can be exhausting for everybody. I do always say to anybody that I'm if I'm if I'm training or running yeah. workshops is you can still listen really deeply yeah. in two minutes. You just need to try and not have all the other yeah, distractions. Yeah. And I think listening can 
mean different things for different people. So I work predominantly with autistic young people, for example. And so actually therapy online works really well because then that client can be in their own safe space and it can be comfortable. You know, we kind of assume that listening is kind of head nodding and lots yeah. of eye contact, but actually however you choose to listen as a human being is okay like the other person is going to sense that from you whether you look away or fold your arms or cross your legs or you're even looking out the window that people can sense when you're when you're paying attention it's also permission to you know it doesn't have to be like a textbook head tilt yes. therapeutic yeah. earnest nodding yeah. Yeah. you know We're that actually that, yeah. you can show show people that you're listening to them in so many different ways and a minute is better than nothing right absolutely i mean it's absolutely better than nothing especially in today's sort of climate around mental health i've often found even in my outside of you know whatever i've worked and stuff in the field uh, i often find that even one or two minutes you know of, of listening and, and and good conversation you know makes a huge difference even in conversations you're having outside of the sphere of mental health and I think it's such an important lesson in a way, um, and it's something that a lot of people struggle to do. Um, what do you think is the is the main reason, like a lot of people, maybe struggle to do that to the degree that's maybe required, you know, for for all the work that we do, we want what we want to see achieved in the world of mental health. And what do you think it is that people really struggle with when it comes to listening and being empathetic? And can it all be explained by modern life, or do you think there's other variables at work there? I think there are, I think it part is, is in part modern life. I, th I think people have, I think, you know, I have, we all have a fear of getting mm -hmm. it wrong, of saying yeah. the wrong thing, of making things worse. Yeah. You know, maybe it's easier if I don't say anything at all, or maybe that young person will go and talk to somebody else who's better equipped or better qualified. Mm -hmm. I always say like, if a young person's come to you and they're trying to tell you something, they're trying to tell you because mm -hmm. it's you. So in a way, it doesn't matter if you sweep the floors or cook the lunches or whatever your role is yeah. in that young person's Absolutely. life, that they come in really because they trust you. So in a way, all inverted commas you need to do is, is to listen and see what happens. We don't have to come up with all of the answers, even though it feels like we might have to. Beautiful. Thanks so much. I think, um, yeah, I completely agree with that. I think um, following on from that, what is the, or given everything we've discussed, what is the, if you could pick one change out of probably hundreds of thousands <laughs> that you would like to see in the next 10 years, um, it could be in the, the realm of youth mental health or beyond, what is the change that you would most likely see if you could press one button right now and that change would be implemented and manifest itself? I would, I mean, I would, I would like, <laughs> I would like so many things. I'm um, funding for mental health services, yeah. more support for educators yeah. <laughs> to be able to support Um, I think also young people being able to choose where they go to get support yeah. rather than that support being maybe imposed on them. Mm. So, um, as you know, I'm, I'm sort of looking at immersive technologies as a way of helping young mm. people 
share their stories and kind of talk about their experiences and you know and that isn't offered in sort of traditional or, or you know, there are very few therapists that are kind of using that that kind of technology yeah. and so how do we open up the world a little bit so that young people that maybe don't want to engage with traditional yeah. therapeutic approaches have yeah. more choice yeah, i i think it's 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 almost like you know certainly whenever i was a teenager um i think I would have like looked at a therapist and been like, oh, it's just another adult, you know, that wants to tell me what to do. And, you know, yeah, I already have enough of those authority figures at school and uh, whatnot. I kind of think like that there's maybe, I think the whole, perhaps like the whole appearance and structure and kind of vibe that the, the therapist gives off through no fault of their own. It's just, you know, what their role is and how it's implemented. But I, I often find that like perhaps the vibe that they give off and all the rest of that is kind of, a bit contrary to, to kind of teenage attitudes and you know you're kind of because when you're a teenager you're you're not you know certainly when I was 14 I wasn't equipped with the knowledge to deal with my emotions feelings and whatnot in, in and in certainly in a healthy way <laughs> um but do you think there is a, a sort of a bit of a sort of tension between you know how the average teenager is and you know the sort of professional vibe and structure that the therapist operates in I saw uh, an incredible group of young people speak at an event on Friday and one young person shared their experiences around therapy and their message was there is a therapist for everyone. And I think some of that is how do we help young people have choice, which often they don't because there is only one therapist yeah. to choose. But actually, if you recognize that maybe you're a walk and talk kind of person, maybe you want the therapy dog <clears> in the room, maybe you want to draw pictures or listen to music or make music or use virtual reality technology, you know, that actually if, if those things are given as options, mm then that young person can choose, actually, this is how I want to engage in that process. So I think as therapists, it's like, how can we be adaptive? How can we be creative? You know, we might be in a cupboard <laughs> under the stairs, but, you know, yeah. what what stuff we have available to us to make therapy feel more accessible and how do we let our clients and our young people know that they can choose? You don't have to draw a picture. You don't have to listen to music. You don't have to write song lyrics. But imagine being told that all of those things were a possibility for you in therapy. You know, if we lay that out at the beginning, then then that frees up so much space to play. <laughs> Which, whatever that is, we all we all have that that need to to play and to be creative. So yeah, how do we make that? Possible? Absolutely, I think uh, it's. Perhaps part of the journey is to to try and reconcile what would you say that that sort of tension and gap between kind of the professional world of therapy, clinical psychology, and all the rest, with the fact that like many, certainly many teenagers, they've they kind of have their own. They know what they're a lot of them, not all of them, of course, but know what their kind of own source of therapy is anyway. So whether it's a lot of video games, podcasts, certain activities outside of that, you know, I think they. That is almost like a form of self-care in a way. And I think mm. perhaps part of our task is to reconcile, you know, the professional world, which is compared very adult and, you know, studious and, you know, overly rigorous and all of that, <laughs> um, with the sort of more, what would you say, naturalistic means of therapies that adolescents um, take part in. 
I think some of that's about how do we how do we put ourselves in some of those spaces. Yeah. So if all of our clients use yeah. TikTok, then if we're we're qualified mental health professionals, you know, we we could go on that platform if that was what we wanted to do. It's also you know what what is that individual comfortable doing? You know, as a therapist, and you know what is possible for you. You know what if you want to be curious about things, or your clients are asking for certain things. Is that something you're willing to try so that you can remove some of those, some of those barriers? Mm-hmm. Is one well, one thing that really uh, that, that comes to mind is that this is something that I have discussed on some of the other calls. It's whenever I was working as a, a mental health uh, project worker um, for a, a charity called Threshold, it was kind of outpatient mental health facility. So basically they referred from the hospital or wherever else. And, you know, they got psychodynamic counseling from the project workers and, and, and whatnot. One of the things that really stood out to me was, and the kind of, it provided the, the platform for me to, to, to join Maxim, um, I think, because one thing I realized was that there was a lot of people there who were say 30, 40, 50 years old who, you could just see were failed by the fact that there was a very, very unsuccessful um, mental health apparatus around them in their life. You know, they never had support. They never were given the opportunity to be equipped with the knowledge uh, of strategies or even where to go to, to get knowledge mm-hmm. of strategies, I think. Um, and that's one of the things that really drove me to, to, to Maxim was because I seen like how feel the previous generation of adults certainly in my own country were were by what was provided to them in terms of mental health and i really want to make that difference for the the young people today so when they reach 30 40 50 years old and life does through bad moments at them which it will <laughs> as it does for everyone i i really want them to be equipped with the strategy and the knowledge and know where to go um is, is that something that's that's kind of crossed your mind? Is it kind of like, you know, how, how failed the previous generation of adults were? Because there was almost no talk of mental health back in, you know, certainly even when I was growing up in this particular context and I'm still quite young. Is that something that's crossed your mind before? I think, I mean, it, yeah, it crosses my mind all the time. Or well, actually, I, I, I hold the assumption now that a lot of young people know where to go to get help, know what mental health is, know know what not feeling okay might look like. And and again, when, when I was listening to young people speaking last week, several of them shared that actually, you know, people didn't know. They didn't know what it was that was happening for them. And I think that's part of the, how, how do we help young people identify what it is to not, not feel okay, whatever okay um, means for them and you know and how do we make that accessible so that it's kind of integrated into that young person's experience so that we're not getting to the point where they're in complete crisis before they're actually able to recognize that something isn't right and that's the wider education I think around how do we support our parents and carers around that young person how do we support the young person's friends you know professionals so that I don't want yeah. people in their I mean, in any year of their life to feel like they, the system had failed them in some way or that they, you know, they didn't have the kind of scaffolding around them that they, that they needed. And I think, you know, that is part of the kind of the issue around funding really is, you know, we have kind of crisis services, but we don't have have anything kind of early on, you know, when things are kind of not okay, but they're not absolute crisis. We need more of we need more of that 
to be available to young people as well, I think. Just uh, absolutely agree. And I think it's the most, you know, arguably the most important thing, I think, in the world of mental health at the minute, because I think um, we are, there is, um, I'm really encouraged by the general shift, I would say, towards, or at least a, a lot of movements and initiatives that want to shift the focus towards kind of preventative measures rather than just being reactive all the time. So react to someone in crisis thoughts of, that mm-hmm. of life not worth living and all the rest of it i think um that is probably the most important thing it's just do as much work as we can to move that needle fully to the preventative side of the dial i just want to pivot back to mm-hmm. a sort of uh, a point that when we were talking about the school counselors earlier what do you think is the biggest what would you say not so much gap but The biggest sort of barrier stopping kind of parents of um, teenagers who are struggling with their mental health and kind of knowing more about the school system and the counsellor. How, what, what do you think is the biggest source of that or and what barriers do you think are the most important? I think in any kind of school system or just in terms of people knowing what counselors do, I think, how do we, how do we make that not this kind of thing? How do we make counseling a really normal Uh, experience? That's good. You don't have to be in crisis to come to therapy. Actually, it's great if you come to counseling and you're not in absolute crisis, you know, then you can do a whole different piece of work on yourself that you can't do when you're in that, that crisis mode. So, I think it's how do we make counselling more accessible, more affordable? How do we make it more inclusive? How do we open our doors to all those different kinds of approaches and let our families know that this stuff exists? How do we, how do our schools kind of celebrate whatever their school counsellors are doing so that the school community are aware of actually, hey, we've got this really great resource here and we do all this other stuff and we have a school therapist as well, you know, so that actually it just becomes a normal yeah. part of of school culture or, uh, you know, that parents and carers feel more comfortable or able to support their child into going into, into therapy. But it's really scary for a lot of parents and carers. They might be struggling with their own Absolutely, issues. Yeah. You know, there's a whole world of other things and barriers that parents and carers can experience. So how do we how do we try and take some of the shame out of that if that's something or the stigma out of that if that's something that parents and carers are experiencing? So, you know, it's therapy's good for for everybody. Absolutely agree. Thanks so much, um, Alan, for joining me today on Maximize. Really, really um great conversation. I was looking forward to it. Um Certainly, because I knew we'd have a lot to talk about because we're really, really similar interests, certainly in the field of mental health. And I think I've really enjoyed this conversation. I've learned a lot and I'm looking forward to, you know, to following you and to, to learning more from you and your professional ventures as well. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much. No thank worries. you. Thank you for listening, everyone, to this week's episode of the Maximize Podcast for Gen Z. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at maxim.app and please follow our LinkedIn profile, MaximVR, and our website, www.maximvr.com.